Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast over the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. And I'm going to let you introduce our very super special guest today. Yeah, I'm excited. We have a guest today. It's Nathan Shedroff. Did I even say that right? You did. Shedroff. Okay, good. Uh, Nathan is an interaction designer. He also teaches at the California College of the Arts. And I'm excited to talk to him. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Um, but I guess I, I'll give a hint. I think I think we'll be talking about strategy stuff around uh, interaction design. And I think we'll also be talking about uh, sustainability in 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 multiple ways, using that that word in multiple ways. Do you think that's accurate that we're going to be talking about that, Nathan? Oh, yeah, I would hope so. Okay. All right. Good. Can, I, can I ask uh, you a quick question before we start? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Can you just tell the story of your first book? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> my first book. I'm trying to think about which one that was. Okay. That was a book called Understanding Computers. Yes, it was. How do you know this, Gus? <laughs> that was a long time ago. Did you read that book by chance? No. Okay. Good. I did not, but I, but I, but I did. I did stumble across it, and I just wanted the story because the cover art was just so interesting, and the title was great. Well, I don't know which cover you saw because there were two editions, okay. but you must have been in diapers when it was originally published. <laughs> um, that you know that was also sort of my foray into on, being an entrepreneur i used to bike a lot i grew up in the south bay in what is now called silicon valley which was a very different silicon valley back then and uh i remember biking with a friend through los altos hills and we were on a long bike ride and he said someday i'm gonna own one of these houses which are you know fairly now they're incredibly expensive houses and i said well how are you gonna do that And he said i'm gonna write a book and make a million dollars promptly displaying the fact that he knew nothing about book publishing and the rewards <laughs> of book publishing. But it got me thinking, and I was working at a company called The Understanding Business at the time with Richard Saul Werman, who, uh, who created the TED conferences. And I thought, well, you know, I make books every day. And I, you know, I know how to make a book and, and make an interesting book. And I know some other things. And so that started this journey to, to write a book about computers for non-tech people, uh, essentially for my mom. And uh, that became Understanding Computers. And, you know, from a design standpoint, I mean, I'm sure graphic designers would probably hate parts of it, but from a information design standpoint, it basically flipped a normal computer book on its head because it started with, you know, what you do with computers and how they impact your lives and then moved progressively into more and more technological detail as opposed to most computer books at the time that started with bits and bytes and transistors. And then if you could hang on long enough, you got to the interesting stuff that you could relate to if you weren't a computer person. Fantastic. See? Guthrie, that, that's funny. I didn't know you were going to ask that question, Guthrie. Nope, I like to keep my secrets. That's Nathan sure. didn't know either, I'm I sure. I did not. <laughs> Last in the past. Uh, I, I always like it because, you know, Susan has a couple books from, we'll, we'll just say back in the day. From when the dinosaurs roamed. Yeah, that's yeah. right. When and, you had to make your own paper. Yeah. So, so I, I always like, I mean, like, uh, just, uh, like, like, uh, the, the people I don't think realize how different the UX world was back then. Oh, and it yeah. really was different. So just, just to kind of hear those stories and where kind of people were at that time is fun. Well, it's probably safe to, you know, remind people that there wasn't a, a UX world, that there was barely any any interest on understanding or even tolerance for interface, whatever that got called at the time. And and a, to, you know, for a lot of the software development world, it was just uh, exercise in pixel design, you know, icons and screen layout at best. Um, and really, people weren't thinking so much about the behavior and it's of a, a piece of software, let alone the behavior of systems, which, of course, is the most important part of our jobs today. All right. So now that Guthrie took us all the way back there, now I have yep. to ask, 
So then what happened? Oh, well, so what's interesting about that time, and I know this is like a bunch of old people sitting around a fire talking about their, you know, their histories. Um, but what was really interesting to me about that time is you could not study and especially not get a degree in anything called you, anything, interface, anything. And so everyone came to this field and these jobs, um, which didn't even have proper titles at the time, from different places. So I remember working at the understanding business with cartographers and graphic designers and history majors and people who had sort of no background in design because we were all coming from different places and we were inventing it at the time, not to say that there aren't things to invent even today, but there wasn't a monoculture of UX or UI or CX or what, you know, all the, the, the ways that we try to differentiate it now. Um, and that was a very exciting, fruitful time that I kind of miss. Well, like, you know, as you were saying that, I was just wondering, I was thinking about it because, you know, if you follow conversations on LinkedIn or whatever, oftentimes people rail against the idea that there's all these people wanting to get into UI and UX now that don't have, you know, a design background, that don't have a master's degree or don't have this or don't have that. And and there's this general feeling of, well, if you want to get into the field, you better go you better go get an education in it. You know, you you can't really self-train in it. Um, and otherwise, you don't belong in it. But, you know, like you just said, originally, everyone that got into it did not have a background in it because it didn't exist. And, and it was, a you know, I remember people coming at it from sometimes graphic design, sometimes programming, sometimes customer service, sometimes the line of business, everywhere. Design I, I mentored some psychotherapists yep, I was gonna who say, wanted well, to come into it. And, and it was kind of like everyone's welcome, you know, yeah. and everyone was willing to share the, what the knowledge was. And everyone was actually very interested in getting these different viewpoints because you know, we would talk a lot about, you know, cross, uh, cross-functional, mm -hmm. this and that, right? Anthropologists. And I wonder if we're, if we've kind of lost some of that. I, I think so. All, all of that was before the gatekeepers came in and started chopping up the field into little discrete boxes. Like, well, that part's UX and that part's UI and that part's screen design and that part's ID and that part's IX. You know, it was a much livelier, more diverse, quite frankly, more interesting time there um, back then. And I think that what that, you know, rather than aside from just reminiscing about, quote unquote, the good old days, <laughs> I think that there's something pertinent in that this part of the discussion that applies today. And I see it in my classes. Um, much of UX has been uniformized and quantized and broken up into pieces and processes and steps, et cetera. And what's fallen out of that is the very essence of what interface was about. So we get a lot of screen design now, um, but not a lot of interaction design, which is to say we concentrate so much on the skills and the processes and the deadlines to get screens built for a product. And we spend very little time still talking about the behavior of the system, the implications of the system, what the actual interaction is. And I find that even with my students, which is a grad design, you know, grad degree in interaction design, have a lot of trouble trying to imagine different kinds of interactions and even rest, wrestling with the idea of what is interactivity in the first place still to this day. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to minimize the fact that there is a huge body of knowledge, uh, multiple bodies of knowledge that are extremely helpful if you're going to yeah. do the work of of designing a user experience, whatever you know particular part of that you mean. And and you know it's it's you know there, there's so much work that's been done in the last couple of decades about about design 
about design systems, about user research, uh, about evaluation techniques, right? Yeah. I mean, it is this this wonderful body of knowledge that didn't didn't exist several decades ago and does exist now. Um, and it and it's and it's all extremely useful. But that's not to say, you know, that you have to learn all of that right. before you can start doing work. And I see people, you know, I work a lot with people who uh, kind of fairly recent graduates of a master's program. You know, is that mm-hmm. you do you teach that you said you teach graduate school? Or are you at a master's, yeah, master's program? Yeah. And I work I'm I work a lot with people who've recently graduated and now are in a particular company and they're very smart and they know a lot, but you know, they don't know everything. Of course they don't know everything, right? So uh, they're still learning. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I I'd I'd like us to be a little more open. You know, I always used to say that um I, I remember years ago working with a client who wanted to had made the decision they wanted to uh, greatly expand the number of user experience people at their company, but they wanted to do it from within. They wanted to take people they already had who had not been formally trained, and they wanted to, you know, train them and and get them going on it. And I was working with them on a, you know, whole series of workshops and courses that we were developing together that I that we would teach them to get them up to speed. And I remember having a conversation about, you know, they were asking, what should we look for in candidates for our internal program? You know, like what kind of background, what kind of training? And and I thought about it for quite a while. And I said, look, the most important thing is actually not the skills they already have. Yeah. It's the mindset. It's the passion. Um, because we can teach them what they need to know. And certainly, I said they need two things. They do need to have used a computer and software and apps. It's really hard if they've never touched anything, you know, which, you know, very few people have never touched anything. But that they need some kind of uh, experience as a user with technology. And then secondly, they have to have a passion and a willingness and an ability to take another person's point of view. And, and you know, they have to really love it. I've worked with people who were skilled and had a background. And you know what? It didn't get them excited to yep. design a user experience that fit a particular target audience. They just, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, I could do it. It was like, no, go find a, <laughs> Go find another career because you're not going to be happy because it's hard work and you have to get excited about doing it or it's not going to be fun and interesting over the long term. Yeah, the thing I would add to that is intent too. And I think you have to have the intent to want to design something for other people in a in a very different way than design sort of grew up uh, before maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago. You know, I, I have a design background. I have an industrial design background. I'm actually a car designer by training. Oh, okay. Um, and, and design back then was, the culture of design was go design beautiful things and populate the world with beautiful things that you think are beautiful and the world will be, you know, will appreciate it or love you or whatever, which is never the case. And that's not how design is taught anymore. And the key difference is design research, right? Now the, the the intent of design is go understand for whom you are designing, what those contexts are, and design things that they need, that, that they can use, that makes their life better and isn't just what you want. And I think that, you know, you can see the history of Silicon Valley as a, a one example of this, you know, 90% of the companies in Silicon Valley failed and 90, 90 some odd percent of all companies, you know, new companies fail, not because they weren't well engineered or well made, but because they weren't for anyone but the people who made them. And so that design research, context seeking, um, understanding, truly understanding others and the intent on what 
what you're designing in the first place is the key difference that I think has transformed the culture of design over the last few decades. Although there's still a lot of people that I think are in that other mindset. Oh, yeah. You know, like the architects, for instance, are still there. But I will say that um, the prevalence of that kind of design in industrial design has dropped a great deal, even to some extent architecture a little bit. And it's almost impossible to function successfully in interaction design like that. Now, that said, it's also possible to do all the right steps in really poor ways or still get to a bad answer. So, you know, Microsoft, for instance, spends more on or used to. So 15 years ago when I was, you know, talking about UX regularly, I would I would ask audiences you know, who is, what company is known for the best interfaces, essentially? And they would always say Apple, easiest to use, da, 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 da. And which companies are known for the most frustrating or annoying ones? And they would always say Microsoft. And I would tell them, well, Microsoft spends way more on user research and, you know, user testing and like exactly the process all of us are saying companies should use. They do it that way and they spend more than anyone else on that. So are we the problem, right? Because Apple spends almost nothing on that. Their process does not um, take into account a lot of user needs um, or, or certainly did at the time. So on the surface, it looks like the approach that we tell everyone to do design research is the thing that's causing Microsoft to make these products that people love to hate. Now, obviously, it's more complex than that but simply doing the right steps in the right order doesn't guarantee a successful outcome either so what is the failure where wherein lies the failure then um well so when you're doing this commercially obviously there's a lot of other forces at work schedules and deadlines and business and you know money and competition and fear and whatnot but i think that also you know, people are wonderfully weird and inconsistent. And so designing for people is not straightforward or easy and never will be. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people in the world, our coworkers, our peers, who are not ready for or well suited to understanding people. I think there's a huge this is what one of the one of the books I'm working on that I'm making no progress on. The premise is that there's a culture war happening between the quant, like the quant and the qual. So quant data, qual data, quant culture, qual culture. And we live in a quant, we live in a qual world, but we're increasingly applying quant processes and criteria to that world. And the qualitative is getting squeezed out of it. And it's making for, I mean, essentially it's ruining everything we touch. And I do think that there are people in the world that are quantitative optimizers. It's a, it's a personality modality. They tend to gravitate towards certain kinds of jobs, business in general as a sector, and certainly finance, management, ops, et cetera, uh, kinds of jobs because it makes them very comfortable. And so a lot of process people are so focused on the process so that they can optimize it that they optimize out everything that's wonderful about the, the job, the outcome, et cetera. And it's a like no there's no better example of this than economics um, because neoclassical economics has basically chopped up and quantified everything and tried to mathetize everything. And so everything that didn't that isn't quantifiable and isn't mathable gets taken out of the equation and ignored. And those things are like all the wonderful things that are qualities, nice, you know, nature and fun and, um, uh, you know, any emotion that you can think of isn't quantifiable. And so it gets run out of the equation and therefore falls out of the criteria. And then we, design products like we've designed markets that optimize for the wrong things so i think the uh one of the things that i've seen a lot of 
in some of our consulting work is there are UX people who are talented and they they're given their mission and they go out and they do all the stuff and they do the cool yeah. thing uh, and then they, they present it to the stakeholders and it promptly gets ignored and changed and then uh, they kind of something goes through a meat grinder and then the sales team yeah. gets involved and you know and a product comes out 14 months later so that does it, the product comes out you know but like where yeah. what's actually how much of the ux work actually makes it out in one piece and so yeah. i'm sure microsoft spends a ton of money but you know microsoft's biggest customer is not the person using windows 11. it's yeah. like it's the corporate customers over and over 100 percent. so right. you know they have to optimize for very different stuff and you know, Apple doesn't have those considerations. So you yeah, end up well, not having that, those problems. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, your customer versus your end user is just the beginning of identifying some of the mismatches here. Um, but I also think that we've made a lot of progress in the last five years in identifying and starting to build some tools or processes to help pick up the slack on the stuff that we've been either forgetting or ignoring or just never knew to look for. Um, that's the premise for the program I teach in right now, which is what are the systems and social issues that technology raises and how do we how do we put them in the design process? So things like equity and privacy and security and diversity and I guess every X it itty any any word that ends with itty is probably you know should be on the whiteboard um, but these have never been criteria before in design for the most part and we certainly don't have we don't even have great des interaction design tools let alone systems design tools and let alone social impact design you know tools so there's a lot of work for us still to do and Guthrie you're absolutely right it's not easy to sort of bring up these points, these impacts um, in a business context with your peers, your superiors, your client, et cetera, um, because, you know, they're looking elsewhere. They're focused on very different things. And then we, you know, then we get Facebook and we lose democracy. Let me ask you a question. Uh, the first, I, I, I need to uh, stand up for my my field, of, chosen field of economics, because <laughs> in the, well, just you're 100% right, and it annoys, like, I, I really dislike yeah. the Econ 101, Econ 102, I, whatever. But that said, a lot of the the hot thing in economics and a lot of the Nobel Prizes in recent years has been people who have tried to bring those uncalculable yeah. things back in, right? So that's why, I mean, I mostly do behavioral economics uh, work, which is functionally that, like, we're going we're gonna to take economic principles and try to apply the formulas to a human you know you know human country okay so yeah, they're working on it it the field's new okay you know it's well, really only been around since the 50s give it some time <laughs> well, i was gonna say it's really not new and and guthrie you're absolutely right behavioral economics as far as i'm concerned maybe with ecological or environmental economics is the only interesting economics now and has to correct for a lot of damage that has been done by the, you know, field of the general field of economics as it's been practiced over the last hundred years. I, I sometimes challenge people. I don't have the kind of grad students that I can go force to do research. But if I did, I would love to force a team of MBA grad students to go calculate the net impact of MBAs on the world. Is it positive or negative? Because my bet is it's not clearly positive and i think you could probably do something very similar with the field you know the traditional field of traditional economics neoclassical economics probably hasn't had a net positive so i am you know god bless you for being a behavioral econo uh, economist because you and the environmental economic economists are like are, are so needed now and are the only thing standing between us and you know, all these people that were literally taught and brought up that rich people create jobs and, you know, all these other myths of business that were bolstered by what has what was probably obvi obvious at the time to some people, but has 
certainly become um, undeniable crappy economics. Well, and I see, you know, I see economics all like physics. Like, it's just a science. Uh, it's a tool. Like, if you uh, want to, the, the policy people who are applying it in a certain way, you know, that's, that's to, to me, that's <laughs> a little different. Economics is just math. Math and statistics and uh, that's that, that's all it is to me. But my question to you is, um, when we were talking about you were talking about uh, applying UX in a in a broader construct, and I wonder if this sentiment sounds right to you. I feel like back in the in, before Agile kind of swept was all the rage and swept the nation. There was there was this uh, this column of UX knowledge and experience where UX decisions were being made. And in a lot of organizations, I sort of feel, and maybe I'm wrong, that it's been flattened and squished. So instead of it all being in one place, it's now like the, it's part of the agile process. And so the developers are doing, you know, there's a part of interaction design that they're touching. The business team is touching it. You're getting different places throughout the organization that are all sort of touching this piece but it's instead of but it's not it's not like it's broadened it's just squished and is smushed out throughout the organization do you think does that yeah, ring true to you uh i think well i think it, it depends a lot on the culture of any particular company and sure. organization obviously yes. but yes. but in general yes and there's some good things and some bad things about that um the good thing is that design needs to touch other parts of the organization in a functional, successful way that it it hasn't traditionally. You know, designers used to um, ghettoize themselves into their own little sort of design studios within big companies, and you know, differentiate themselves as a result by you know wearing lots of black and eschewing the normal trappings of office decor and personal de- you know fashion, etc because they had to protect themselves and their process. Um, And so I understand that. And we need to not just reach out, but also understand more the people that we interact with so that we can be successful. One of the reasons I started the design MBA program at CCA so many years ago was that you know, does it, I, I basically was saying if designers, if you all want to, or if we all want to have the influence that we think we deserve, we need to go understand, you know, business language, business issues, business processes, so that we can function successfully and get our point made to people who don't either care about design or understand design and are focused on other things. So I absolutely we should be interacting more and understanding our peers more. That said, <laughs> you know, design, again, design is very different than it was before. You know, even designers weren't caring about their customers and their users in, in the way that we sort of require now 20 years ago. And, and as you pointed out, Susan, many still don't, right? There's still a culture of design that's very active, that's entirely focused on appearance and aesthetics and style and fashion, less so maybe in interaction design, more so maybe in fashion design and interior design. Thankfully, getting less so in car design, but it's still pretty rooted from that end of the spectrum. Um, the designers have always had to contend with the fear and it was a very real fear that everyone is a designer everyone thinks they are a designer because hey they can see colors and they have opinions too and my you know wife's next door neighbor's dog walker likes purple so can we see it in purple right that's a designer's nightmare but the other side of that coin is Purple says this to your customers. Gold says this to your customers. This form triggers that in your customers. And guess what? They're not you. So it isn't about your favorite typeface or colors or, you know, sounds either. (laughs) It's about what your customers respond to and you being an orchestrator rather than a dictator of all these design choices 
so that your customers are having, your audience, your users, whoever, are having the experience that's intended in their language, in their culture, um, and not the one that you prefer for, you know, decorating your own homes. And when we can do that, and that's why design research is so critical, and parts of design research that really aren't even practiced regularly either, by the way, because then we're in a position to go up against the CEO or the VP of marketing or whoever's above us or next to us and say, the reason why we made these design choices, the reason why we recommend us going this way is because it does this in our cu- for our customers and it does this in the market. And it's, it's, it's no longer an opinion, right? It's not, I like this typeface, I like this form, I want it to be a cube or a sphere, I like gold. It's, it takes the opinion out of the room and says, we've tested this and this is what gets results. And for the most part, except for absolutely egomaniacal leaders, they respect that. Yeah, I wonder, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about a couple things that I think impede good user experience within these companies. And one is that, and I'd I'd like to get your opinion on whether you think these are, are true widespread this is a widespread issue um one is that it seems to me that in a lot of companies things get designed and developed and implemented in little pieces yeah and so it's it's possible that it might this little piece all by itself maybe is well designed but the problem is you have you know, a hundred, a thousand little pieces that then when the the human is using this thing and they're using all those little pieces to yeah. get something done, they don't play nicely together. They don't make sense. You know, it's, it's a jarring experience, but nobody knows that, you know, because every, and, and so this ties into another thing, which is we still have, at least in the, Maybe this is just uh, the companies that Guthrie and I are consulting. Incredible silos. It's like, yeah. wow, you know, these silos that have been around for a long time and they're still there. And so you've got this group over here developing their little part. And, the, you know, like that. So it's both the breaking things up into pieces, but also this persistent structure of organizations in in which products are designed and developed that that seems impossible to to break down in any significant way thank you for describing most of the last 50 years of automobile design in in the <laughs> really right? is it changing yeah. in automobile design right it is changing but not very quickly by the way except for companies maybe like tesla um, and I think that, that there's a couple parts to what you just shared that are important. One is that this is more due to the behavior of organizations and how they're managed than it is about any design observation or process or, for that matter, you know, supply chain, material, engineering, manufacturing solution or issue. And that's one of the reasons why designers need to rise up and take on leadership and management roles because we aren't going to have the conditions for more successful design unless we change the way we manage not just design and 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 design ops is incredibly important but how we manage organizations in total you know there will not be a role for design that's successful if you don't have the right kind of culture of management and leadership within a company um, or, or any other kind of organization for that matter. And a really good example of that, Guthrie, you just mentioned a little earlier about Agile. There is no place for design in Agile, period. There never has been. And the only way that there is in some organizations is they have to sort of, you know, slice a beachhead in and widen it out enough for there to be some piece of design. Um, But traditionally, 
Agile is about engineering. It's about coding. It's not about holistic solutions. And it's certainly not about design, nor does it make room for design. Now, does this mean that Agile is bad? No. Agile is a good, important part of, you know, modern practices. But managing by Agile, and by the way, most people, most organizations that tout that they're, you know, Agile really aren't Agile either. <laughs> um, you know, if we just, if we just, like, take on these pre-built processes and solutions, that's not good management or good design either. If you can't deal with the day-to-day ambiguity of the people you're working with, the people you're designing and building for, and just the weirdnesses that happen when you get people together in terms of schedules and budgets and processes, et cetera, if you can't deal with that ambiguity that constantly arises, no process is going to help you, you know, be successful. Um, what you're really talking about, Susan, is systems thinking. And most people haven't even heard the term systems thinking, let alone have been told that it's important, let alone have been getting given any tools with which to be a systems thinker. But everything that you're bringing up ends up being a systems problem because design can't live in just one place in an organization and it can't just look at certain parts and be well designed there and then have other parts that are just disastrous, Facebook, and, you know, expect to have success either at a corporate level, at an individual level, or at a societal level. So we really need to learn to be systems thinkers. And some people just aren't good at that. So I, I love it that we're talking about these small and inconsequential <laughs> issues. All right. But I want to ask you a question. You talk yeah. a lot, or I mean, you, 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 it seems to be in the things you talk about in the, in the stuff at your website and so on about, you use the term sustainable. Yeah. Right. And you use that in a couple of ways. So can you, talk about what that what it means you know if 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 Nathan's talking about things being sustainable what do you mean by that well I, I there's so first of all sustainable isn't enough and some people hate that term because simply sustaining where we are isn't going to be successful either I get that we can play the the word game all day long and no, not get anywhere right but sustainable sustainability has come to mean, um, you know, forward-looking future success success in the future in three categories. This is sort of de rigueur or current traditional sustainability. That would be um, sustainability in terms of our natural environment, which every day reminds us that it needs some attention. It because our our social environment rests on our natural environment, you don't get society without nature being there. It means that our social environment, which, you know, you're a behavioral psychologist, Susan, you know that cracks open to an amazing amount of issues and bullet points just within what is society. But it means it has to work for people and groups of people. And then within that, the reality is it has to work in a financial system, in a financial environment, because we we live and work in in those systems. Right. And the m- money system, the economy doesn't function without society and society doesn't function without nature. So sustainability means it's got to work on all three levels, which, oh, my God, three levels. Now you're talking systems thinking and, and systems issues without, you know, batting an eye because you know, that's that's it. That's the total of almost all human existence falls into those three things. So sustainability certainly means let's not make the world worse with our our decisions and the things that we create in these three categories. But it's also come to mean so many other things in a in a microscopic way or, or a less macroscopic way it means the sustainability of a company of a revenue stream it means the sustainability of relationships it means personal sustainability you know how am i going to function in this world or or this 
two-year grad program, you know, can I work this much and, and be healthy? So it's really about health in all these systems. And it's, it's so important because we have developed so many sophisticated reasons and ways not to be healthy economics. Um, and we need to go correct those things. And yes, that's a little prod to you, Guthrie. Oh, yeah. No, I noticed. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and it's yeah. not just economics either. It's physics. Like the book I'm working on, every, cha after every chapter basically is titled um, Why Physics is Ruining the World, Why Economics is Ruining the World, Why Business is Ruining the World. Um, and and it's all of the all of our human systems have faults at their core and the only way to change them is to redesign them and i get that some people are car designers and fashion designers or screen designers and they don't want to be anything more than that and that's okay but they also have to we all have to understand that we're designing whatever we're designing is in the context of other things and we're contributing to the designed world in all its facets, whether we like it or not. And and do you uh, is some of the are are these ideas infused in some of the teaching that you do? Oh yeah, all of it. I, I'm lucky enough to teach in a program specifically that is about social impact of technology. Uh, we teach design skills, obviously, but we teach impact skills and stakeholder analysis tools and, you know, ways of popping these issues, certainly not all of them, into the design process and helping students wrestle with them to see if they can at least um, acknowledge them, if not respond to them. And, and in fact, my colleague, um, my colleague Minnie in, in one of our classes, Social Lab One, um, has helped us change our vocabulary. I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm a 50 year old designer, so it's hard for me sometimes to change the words I use. But, you know, we're increasingly talking about our designed solutions as responses, as, as ephemeral, temporary points on a timeline that are responding to the context that we see as opposed to something discrete and final that we're going to drop into the world and then walk away from and go do something else. So you're trying to build in the idea that this is our response right now. Yes, exactly. And that as things change, our response, meaning our design, our product, our solution, will also change. Yeah, and anyone that's been in this industry for more than four years probably and has tried to build a portfolio or a vitae or, God forbid, write a book that points to digital experiences, especially websites and apps that we've designed, knows this really well because all of those things have changed. They no longer reflect the state they were when you worked on them. And now that's a question, can I even point to there? as saying yeah. I did that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Well, right, right. It, it's pretty impossible. But, but, and I wonder too, as I'm thinking, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about some work we're doing with some of our clients and, and, and I know that there are, maybe I don't say this enough in these meetings because I know there are times where I want to say to a particular client, about this particular project, just, you know, ease up. Yeah. You know, we don't assume you're designing, for instance, I, you know, a web, this website or this re website redesign, don't assume you have to design this in a way that will last for 15 years. It It's a website, yeah. Yeah. you know, you know it's not going to last. For 15 years so can we change the way we're thinking about it so that you know and this is uh, uh, you know whether or not you're a fan of agile or iteration or you know this this is a great reality it's you're going to be iterating this a lot yeah for a long time 
Can we put into place a way to do that where we can still at any given point have a better product, a better design out there for right now while knowing that as soon as it goes out, we're working on the next version. <laughs> or or the, in, the inverse, when we redesign this, can we do a good enough job that we don't have to scrap the entire project? Is, is, there, is there any parts of this that we'll be able to salvage? Which is more often the case, I think. Well, and 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 so, you know, one of the things that we all need to acknowledge is that this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for the best of us, right? There are so many issues. It's impossible to take into account all of these issues and design something that works for everyone. That said, we still have to try, or we have to get serious about prioritizing and targeting which are the things that we can have impact and which are the people we can have impact for rather than throw up our hands and say, you know, it's impossible. There's too much. I'm, I can't deal with all this. Can we just, you know, get the screens done? And, and to your point, Guthrie, maybe the thing that needs to outlast the versions of the app or the website or God knows what else is the intent is the context, is the understanding of who we are as an organization and who we want to, how we want to present ourselves. With the target audience. And it's less, right. And it's yeah. less about the logo, the colors, the screen, the you know, layout, the, you know, the AI, the IA for that matter. You know, how, I, I remember working on Bank of America's first website way back when and you know here's this gigantic multinational organization that that serves so many different people it serves governments and i mean like nations as well as local governments and organizations and businesses and then you might have your checking account there too right like there's this huge um context spread for them and i remember um saying one day in this crappy little room inside B of A that we were given to work with our client in because she was so sort of disempowered and <laughs> disrespected within this giant organization about what we were doing. Um, and I remember saying, Karen, you realize that what we're doing now will ultimately rearrange, restructure Bank of America as a corporation because we were talking about how do we present all of these options, all of these services on a homepage, like there's only so much, there's only so many pixels, there's only so much real estate. And I knew that the design of the presentation of the information, and I don't mean the screen design, I don't mean like the visual design, I mean the organizational design of how we were communicating to people all the things that B of A did would result ultimately in divisions being joined or taken apart and and different groupings and departments and in, in within the organization because they would come to know themselves that way and assume that's how they were and i just remember <laughs> her saying don't say that to me again that's that i can't <laughs> handle that right like i can't do my job if i if i acknowledge that this thing that we're working on that no one else in the organization even knows about or cares about is ultimately going to change the the organizational chart of the company but i do believe that that's what we do especially in information design so maybe that's the part guthrie that needs to be designed to last and and maybe that frees up a little bit of the tension and seriousness and makes it even more playful for us to deal with all the other design decisions yeah, and the expectations too. Of, yeah. Okay, we're doing things very quickly because it's agile, and we gotta. The only thing we actually care about is the the way things are laid out on the page because we're the programmers. Yeah. And we have the data team, and they're giving us all of the you know A/B testing information that we're going to exclusively use to make all of our decisions. Um. So. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. UX, uh, you want to do a thing or what, whatever you guys do? I don't know, you know. Um. <laughs> well, you, 
you just brought up one of the things that like is another nightmare for designers, which is the the data thing, the A/B testing, right? So yeah. many designers left Google back in the beginning of the aughts because their their engineering culture basically said the data will tell us the answer. We tested forty six different shades of blue and this is what came back as the most successful shade right which basically said to designers screw you your history your knowledge your understanding about how the eye works your understanding of color theory because none of it matters the a b testing will tell us the answer and, we and have, this is well i'll just say i yeah. very briefly we have clients where the the data team isn't it's a different team it's not even the yeah. ux team right so the engineers they go to the data team to get answers about how do we put this on a page oh, yeah. they're not even going to the ux team totally different team well and this to me is a good example of this culture rift between the quant and the qual because yes that data is valuable and should be taken into account when making a decision but it still may be the wrong decision right what if that blue is owned by your competitors so now you're branding your website with their color what if that blue doesn't work for people with, you know, colorblindness? What if that blue says something different in the context of the page than simply I found the button and I'm, I was successfully able to click on it, right? And, and that's the narrowing of all of these, the artificial narrowing of these choices and the over-reliance on only a certain kind of data, in this case, a certain narrow quantified data stream making a decision which is ultimately a human decision that's i think what what bothers designers the most yeah yeah i, I think it does though on the other and then sometimes um organizations will smush them all together where they have the oh, yeah. okay you went to art school you you have a degree in statistics have fun tell us what yep. to do well and and i think that you know when we're talking about squishing together we're talking about the org chart again mm -hmm. you know there are there are different kinds of organizational cultures when it comes to design and innovation and on my website i think there's a you know my colleagues over at cheskin which no longer exists anymore did a study and found six different kinds of cultures and the point isn't that one culture is better for innovation than another. The point is to understand what culture your organization is and let that shape how you innovate within that culture. Because A, it may not be possible, like a, the, the, the smallest cultural minority there is called innovation outsourcers, which just means our culture, you cannot innovate within our culture. It is not possible. All of our innovation comes from either outsourcing it to another company or buying another company's innovation and then guess what, we're innovative. That's okay, I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay. <clears throat> like, as long as you're not trying to function in that company as if it were a dynamic innovator, like an Apple, um, or, or a, you know, any of the other cultural categories there. So this is why the design of organizations, management, I know that word, leadership, are so important as a designer because if you want to have the impact and the and the autonomy that you really want to be a designer, um, you need to get involved with these things. I'm sorry. So you have companies where design is the a C level position, right? Chief Creative Officer, C C O. She's right up there next to the CCO and or the COO and the CFO, et cetera. That's a different experience for the design than if it's owned by marketing um, or owned by sales, which in some ways might even be better than being owned by marketing or owned by operations or owned by engineering, right? Like every place you can make it work, but there are some places where the organization can be more successful, at least for certain aspects certain parts or issues of the design process. All right. So if you, let's say you're not at the sea level, yeah. you're in one of these companies and uh, I, I, all right, I'm going to ask this question of a couple of different people. Okay. I mean, I'm asking it yeah. of you, yeah, but yeah. as it pertains to a couple of different people. So let's say I'm, uh, you know, in charge of UX at a company, 
but I'm not at the sea level. You know, like I'm within engineering yeah. or I'm within marketing or I'm within some other place, you know, te- tech, IT, and the, and the UX group is here and I'm in charge of the UX group. So this is called putting Nathan on the spot here. What's one thing that I could do right now to help with with all this, especially to help with this idea of, you know, sustainable design yeah. in the three areas you laid out well uh, you know the 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 grand one the the long-term one is to earn their trust and the way that you earn their trust is to be reliable um to be professional who's the they you mean uh, the c-level the, people whoever's no, the above me, you the, the me the designer so if i'm reliable okay. if i'm professional if i learn to speak their language and and talk in terms of the things that they're concerned about, then they will begin to trust my opinion. Now I'm in a position where I can, number two, help them to understand that human systems are different than technological systems and different from business systems. And that the same management processes and criteria aren't gonna work evenly across those three. Like. Engineer, you know, we can get engineers on our side by essentially demonizing the, the the business folks and saying, God, they really don't understand us because they try to manage a technological process with, you know, these business school concepts of, you know, optimizing human resources and business. And that drives engineers crazy, too. Right. So we can buddy up to them and then. Find a common find a common enemy. Right, exactly. Which you know I'm not saying is the the right way to do this, but but once you get them to see the the, the challenge is if you can help an engineer see that managing finances and managing a supply chain isn't the same as managing an engineering process. Now you're just a little step away from them getting that managing an engineering process isn't the same as managing a design process. And if you can acknowledge the difference in one, then you're in a good position to acknowledge the difference in another. And you got to have your own ducks in a row. Your design process better not be, you know, I'm super famous, super insightful, visionary designer. I shall dictate what the solution should be. If you're using a credible design research process, if you're really empathetically listening to your customers, now you can say, and by the way, the design process is about designing for humans, not for systems. You design for servers and file formats and network protocols, and that's all really, really important. I design for people, emotions, value, values, identity. I design for more than just function, and that's really important too. Now, when you go to your business, I, I hate to say business peers, we need a better, maybe operational peers, manage, managerial peers, because, hey, we're business people too. We're just, we're professional designers. We're in business. So when you go to your managerial peers, you often hear all sorts of things that are just so wrong, like, oh, well, people won't pay more for that. Really? Apple? BMW, Tiffany, people don't pay more for things. It, they have been trained to spout absolute nonsense that they don't even think about because it's just taken to be truth like people like rich people create jobs. So you have to be very careful when you challenge someone's worldview, but it needs to be challenged. Be, and so I would say when you try to have these conversations, relate it back to them as a person, as a personal life. When they say people won't, it'll be too expensive and people won't buy it. Look at the clothes that they're wearing. Is it, is it Kirkland? Is it Gap? Is it Banana Republic? Is it Savile Row, right? Look at a, a good, an easy example would be shoes, watches, and cars. What do they drive? Do they drive the most generic Kia? And even Kias are looking pretty smart these days. Are they wearing a Rolex? Probably not. It's probably a Tag Heuer, right? Well, none of those are the cheapest things. So why would they expect other people to behave 
in a way that they don't even behave? And the answer is they don't realize that they don't behave that way either. So I, I think this is a longish process of helping to establish a rapport that isn't confrontational, but is necessarily instructional in reminding them that they are people too. And and there is ample evidence that shows that people do wish to buy things that align with their values. They don't do it in every category. They don't do it for every product. Sometimes those differences are gender, sometimes they're age, sometimes they're culture, but they we all do, right? So we need to change the conversation from features and performance to the, the most valuable brands in the world, the ones, the companies that reap the most revenue and profit per, you know, whatever unit you want to describe, aren't playing a price and performance game. You are if you're if you're designing dram chips. There's there's still some other stuff at work too, but you know I get that there are some industries on the commodity level that are mostly about price and performance. Once you get out of that commodity level, and I hear this all the time when I talk about the five kinds of value, someone inevitably says, "Well, that's fine for B2C consumers. Sure, consumers." care about brand and values and identity and make crazy choices because they're fallible humans. But my business is B2B. All my buyer cares about is price. And I, you know, like you have to smirk in a very <laughs> gentle way and say, finish this sentence for me. And it only works with people of our age, Susan. I'm not sure it'll even work with Guthrie here. Nobody ever got fired for hiring blank. Any guesses? What's blank? Catherine, we'll put you on the spot. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. No one ever got fired for hiring. Okay, I'm just going to take some guesses about what that word could be. Uh, how about talent? Yeah, you're 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 in you're so off base because you're so wonderfully smart. Um, no, the, the, the phrase ends IBM. Nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. And, Catherine, if, does that phrase uh, make, have you ever heard yeah. that? Well, it makes sense make to me because I know the history, but I get it. So what, what do you think, what do you think that, that phrase means? If yeah. someone said that, what would that mean? Uh, well, my guess would be back in the day, IBM had a very sterling reputation. And so if you hired IBM, you went to the best. How could you that you made a good decision because they were so smart and awesome? And why would that matter, Guthrie? Why would that matter? In what conditions would that matter? Uh, like in what conditions would you getting fired matter as or in what conditions would you hiring IBM matter? Bing, 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 bing. No, you said the important word fire. Yeah, it turns out that job security trumps price and performance. Sure. And the, the condition was if the project went south, who could blame you for making a, and fire you for making a bad decision? You hired IBM. If IBM couldn't do it, it simply couldn't be done. You see this. That's in, essentially the culture. And you see this in sports leagues all the yep. time, right? So it's Every, like if you're the general manager, never make any risky decisions because it's like, well, yeah, I took the consensus number one overall pick. I didn't, I didn't trade the pick. I didn't do anything wild. I just did what everyone thought was a good idea. So how can you blame yep. me when it went south? Exactly. Well, so this to me is the proof that those quote unquote other issues do matter. They're really powerful. This is the other value, the emotional, the identity and the meaningful value. And they matter just as much in B2B and B2G government work and, and sales as they do in B2C. Because IBM was never the best at building these things. There was always some small group that was probably obscure that could build it better. They were never the cheapest and they would admit to that, right? But it turns out that job security, which is an emotion, which is a, about fear, is it, it trumps the decision drivers over price and performance. So once you can get 
managerial folk to understand this, especially leadership. Leadership folks pretty much understand this anyway. The people who really understand this in an organization are the salespeople because they know if it's just a matter of features and price, they've already lost the sale. Someone can always undercut them. They're not selling on the basis of price and performance because they don't have an edge there. They're selling on the basis of reputation, relationship, all these other things that our business processes constantly tell us aren't important. So part of this process as a designer is helping the other people around you and very often above you to, to better understand this, to acknowledge it, because they don't function the way that they're saying customers function either. Yeah, for me, so much of all of this comes down to figuring out how to engineer some aha moments so people yeah. come come face to face with their own uh, cognitive biases and you know, that they they don't even they're not really conscious of right that yeah. that are operating. Nathan, I I I love it. You know, I always love I getting on these calls because it's like, oh. I wonder what we'll talk about. And it's like, whoa, okay, let's just open up the whole universe of things to talk about. This has been a really, uh, for, for me, a really fun conversation. And and you've actually, I was taking notes because you've given me a lot of things to think about. A lot of what we've been talking about, I think is really relevant to, to some of the consulting work Guthrie and I are doing. Um, so I really appreciate you spending the time. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward you you kind of hinted that you were writing you were working on some books so I hope one of these days uh, those will come out and and we'll be able to read them I think they, they sound like you're working on some really interesting stuff is there Me uh, too. pardon yeah you Me too, too. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, tell us if people are interested in getting hold of you what is the best way to do that uh, my my coordinates are always on my website nathan.com. Um, and, you know, my work is listed there and the things that I'm focused on are right there on the homepage, which is what are the new tools that help us design for these better solutions in all of their aspects. Um, and, you, yeah, you can it's pretty easy to find your way to how to contact me. OK, great. Thank you so much. Guthrie? Fantastic. It's my pleasure. Thank you both. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, too. Fantastic. Um, yeah, if you have any uh, questions, you can get a hold of us at info at the teamw.com. Um, anything else that we that we want to plug, Susan, at the end? Well, okay. Can we mention that your new uh, ethics certificate, online uh, certificate in in ethics is out and published and ready to go. And fundamentals is awesome. free too, so you can. And the fundamentals course of that is yeah, free. free. And Guthrie, where should they go if they're interested in that? Well, you can go to courses.theteamw.com and you can find all, all that stuff um, for uh, yeah the free free courses and the paid one. All right, thank you everyone for listening. Thanks all. Bye. Bye. Bye, Nathan. Bye.